Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. We're recording this shortly before the new Israeli government, led by Benjamin Netanyahu, comprised of right-wing and religious parties, is officially scheduled to be sworn in. Joining me to discuss the actions this new coalition has already taken and what we can expect from it in the future is Rabbi Noah Satat, the executive director of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. Noah is an ordained reform rabbi who served for 11 years as the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center. And before that, she was executive director of the Jerusalem Open House for Pride and Tolerance, where she co-led the movement to establish the first Pride March in the country's capital. Noah, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. It's so good to be here. Good morning. We entered this week with the news that Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party has signed coalition deals committing to passing an amendment to anti-discrimination laws, which would essentially allow private businesses to discriminate on the basis of religion. For example, a hotel owner could refuse LGBT customers. A doctor could refuse to give fertility treatments to unmarried women or to LGBT couples. What were your thoughts when you heard this? So this is a plan that has been long in the making, and it's very much inspired by the religious right in the U.S. and trying to allow or enable discrimination. I think it's part of a broad right-wing agenda this, that this government is uh, promoting. I want to just remind us that this is in the coalition agreement, so it's not a law, but it is one of the very multiple uh, alarming signs of what this government wants to um, introduce or change or revolutionize in the Israeli legal system. It sounds like the legislation is already drafted and ready to go. At the same time, Netanyahu is assuring people via the media that these may be in the coalition agreements, but they're not really going to happen. Are you at all reassured by that? I, I think that we need to differentiate. So first of all, when authoritarian regimes come into power, there's often a shock and awe stage. And, uh, you know, it's been going on since Mussolini, but we can remember it from the days before Trump took power where he committed to 100 executive orders that would take away rights. And I think we're just uh, at the very last stages of this shock and awe period where we go from statements into re-legislation, which takes a lot more time. So I am not reassured by Netanyahu's promise for minority rights. I, you know, I think that that's a very weak uh, branch to hang on. But I do think that not everything that is in the coalition agreements will come into action. And that's where we as uh, activists, we as journalists, we as citizens, we as supporters of Israel have a very strong and important role to play in uh, mitigating and preventing and blocking the various uh, actions that this government wants to take. When it comes to human rights and civil rights, and looking ahead towards this government, the Israeli mainstream media has been largely focused on LGBT discrimination, gender discrimination, a lot of issues that will affect Jewish Israelis. They've been focused less on what this will mean for Palestinians, both those who are Israeli citizens and live within the Green Line and those in the West Bank. Other than the overarching issue of a government with forces in it that is pushing hard towards annexation, how do you expect Palestinian lives to be affected by this new government? So first of all, I, I think that that's a very important point that you're making. As a lesbian, a mother of four, I am extremely worried about the um, anti-LGBT legislation, but I think that it sometimes is used as a cover 
so that the government can refrain from LGBT, anti-LGBT legislation in order to legislate horrific um, new realities for Palestinian, for other minorities and specifically for Palestinians. So I want us to pay attention to that so that we're not only focusing on LGBT rights, but on the larger framework of human rights in Israel. And in terms of what we're concerned about for Palestinians, of course, Palestinians in the West Bank and Palestinians inside Israel is a little bit of a different story. Inside Israel, we are very concerned both on general limitations um, on freedom of expression, freedom of protest that will have broad effects, but will mostly focus on uh, Palestinians or the Palestinian narrative. We are thinking that today, later today, um, Monday, the new legislation on um, altering the the authorities of the minister of uh, in charge of the police will pass. Th- this law will have a broad effect on anybody demonstrating, but specifically, and also we can see it in the way that the powers are divided. It's specifically focused on preventing and suppressing freedom of expression and freedom of protest for Palestinians. And then there are uh, laws that would specifically target Palestinians in a very more, in a much more explicit way. Um, so in that sense, we can look at the uh, law banning the Palestinian flag. The Palestinian flag is completely legal right now. Uh, and the flag is such a, an important symbol of national identity and expression. Um, so the attempts to ban the Palestinian flag are on the table. Uh, we are very worried about the att- attempts to limit political representation of the Palestinian community within Israel. We are now at the end of almost a decade of intense uh, political discourse against the political representatives of the Palestinian uh, society in Israel. And the way I'll just zoom out and, and explain the way elections work. So the way elections work is that different parties submit their lists to the elections committee. And then there's a political process in the Knesset in which Parties are qualified or disqualified. In every single election in the past 25 years, Palestinian parties have been disqualified. On what basis? Sometimes on basis of incitement to uh, violence, sometimes on the basis of not supporting uh, Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. Different reasons every time. But it's a political process. It's completely sold. And in that sense, it's a political process. The majority can always disqualify the parties of the minority. And then there's judicial oversight. And every time the judicial oversight reverses the decision and qualifies the Palestinian parties. If we remove the judicial oversight, which this government may do. Right. We've been speaking a lot on this podcast about the implications of the passage of an override clause bill, which would give the political leadership the final word when it comes to legislation and not the Supreme Court. Yes. So, so that could be a broad issue, but it, all, it could also be only on the issue of elections. Um, and that would uh, revolutionize the political map in Israel and create a uh, reality in which a large minority has no political representation. And that is a process that often leads to radicalization. So we're very concerned about that. Also, in terms of issues inside Israel, we're worried about more discrimination um, against uh, um, the Palestinian society in terms of education, housing, other issues that we will be monitoring very closely. In terms of Palestinians in the West Bank, the government clearly has a policy of uh, trying to vacate Area C from Palestinians in order to promote either the URI or de facto annexation. What does it mean to you, the fact, how do we interpret the fact that 
Bezalel Smotrich, in addition to being Minister of Finance, has requested and gotten special powers within the Defense Ministry related to the West Bank. How do you see that playing out in real time? So, first of all, it, it really depends on the reaction from the public and the interna- and the reaction from the international community, how much of this will be carried out. But the vision of Bezalus Montoch, and he's not hiding it, is to create the reality of occupation of Israel on the West Bank permanent. So he's trying to move the civil administration, the authorities that are now controlling the West Bank, from the military, where it's done under occupation, into Israeli um, government offices so that it becomes permanent. How that will play out will really depend on pressure both from inside Israel and from outside of Israel. Pressure to leave it in the, in the hands of the military and not uh, and not move it to the civil uh, realm? Pressure, I, I think that the U.S. has a, a currently expressed a very clear determination to not uh, allow any steps that would make the two-state solution impossible in the future. I think that that's a very clear goal of this government, specifically of Bezalel Smotrich, to eliminate any possibility of a two-state solution. And, and the question is how far he would be able to go with that. And that could include um, both the registration of uh, ownership of, of Jews in the West Bank on land. Land is the key issue in occupation. So he's trying to, to mitigate a lot of processes that would allow Jews to purchase land permanently in the West Bank. It could uh, be an annexation of the Jordan Valley. There are many different ways that he would try to sabotage the idea of a two-state solution. So presuming that he is highly motivated to do all this, the person who could potentially put the brakes on him would be the prime minister, right? Benjamin Netanyahu. So what you're saying is it depends kind of how much pressure there is on Netanyahu domestically, politically, and internationally to hold the reins on Smotrich and you know, as much as he can, since Smotrich is a key part of his coalition, but how much he can stop Smotrich from, from pursuing this agenda. I think so. Okay. I think so. While we're speaking of uh, populations that are neglected and not getting that much attention, what about refugees and asylum seekers? Um, We've been reporting in Haaretz that there is legislation in the coalition agreements which would allow for unlimited incarceration, uh, withholding money of uh, asylum seekers, and uh, and denying them rights to a court hearing. So, yeah, so one of the ways uh, in which the override clause will have uh, immediate implication, I think, is the asylum seeker community. Um, the court has used the power to override laws uh, on, on issues of the uh, asylum seeker community, I, I think five or six times in the past decade, mostly around the deportation, incarceration, and denial of uh, socioeconomic rights. And all of these le- pieces of legislation that have been ruled out by the court, we are concerned would rise up again if the override law is accepted. And as the head of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, what's your counter strategy basically to prepare to fight this in court, presuming that there is no override clause yet? So what we've been doing since the election is really mapping out the risks. Uh, And they're all on our website if uh, listeners are interested, acri.org.il. But what we've done is we've looked at all of the past bills that members of the incoming coalitions have put up in previous Knesset sessions. We've looked at the... um, the coalition agreements, and we've looked at right-wing think tanks and their position papers in order to really create a map of what we're facing. And we're going to be have to be very creative in the way we work because the rules may change while the game is still on. Uh, and, and we're already seeing that the public organizing has a very critical role. And 
public protest has been essential for uh, refugees and asylum seekers in the past. I think that litigation is going to be key, uh, even if the override clause passes. And certainly there's the override clause is not a single element. The, the coalition agreements list a whole slew of ways uh, to limit the judicial independence. I think litigation is key both because it can stop the clock. We've seen that today um, in the response to the petitions against the law enabling Derry to become a minister, that immediately there has been an injunction against that. Arie Derry being able to become a senior minister despite the fact that he's been uh, convicted and served jail time for corruption. Exactly. Yeah. Against, against the, the current legal framework. So the court has immediately stopped that process uh, in preserving the status quo. The status quo is not ideal by any means, but preserving it right now has great value. And litigation also creates a, a good platform for public discourse and for fine-tuning the um, concepts that we're talking about. So litigation will continue to be key in these coming years. So your legal team is very busy. <laughs> yes, uh, we're, we're going to be even busier. Um, but it really sounds, though, here, though, the tip of the spear is the override clause, because if that passes, as you say that litigation will still be useful, but it is potentially overridable and therefore potentially weak. There are many functions that the court plays. This uh, overriding laws is actually maybe less than 10% of what the court does. It does mean that they can legislate things that they maybe are not legislating right now because they know that the court will override them. But this this is a key element of what the court does, but the court can also interpret laws in different ways. Um, So litigation will be... Just as important and even more important after after and if if the override clause passes, and I want to say that the government, you know, came in saying this is a key priority for us, and already they have postponed it to the summer session and not said that they would not be passing it in the next coming months. So public pressure and international pressure is very important at this point. And you think that's a result of the public pressure campaign? Uh, how exactly? The, the different pressure p- plays out, I think that it's important to put on pressure wherever we can. What are you uh, braced for in the arena of freedom of expression and freedom of protest? Because on one hand, we can expect that this is going to be a period of a lot of protests, a lot of speaking out about the government. And on the other hand, uh, government, especially with Netanyahu at the top, who is so conscious of the public conversation, to take steps um, as much as possible to push back against the amount of protest and freedom of expression. First of all, it's important to note the chilling effect that the government like this has. And already we're seeing things that we haven't seen, at least not in the past years, in terms of um, attempts to shut down events or to prevent. Um, we're now uh, representing a student in the disciplinary uh, committee of uh, Ben Gurion University f- uh, for her participating in an event and quoting um, an article from Mahmoud Darwish that had the word Shahid in it in Arabic. So we're already seeing attempts to suppress freedom of expression. And this is where we all have a role to play. The more we speak, the easier it will be. The less we speak and the less we exercise our freedom of expression, it'll be harder to, pr- to preserve. So we are really looking forward to cooperating with journalists and with people in the academic world and with, pe- and with artists and creators to make sure that we are using our freedom of speech. The more we use it, the more we have it, the less we use it, the likelier it is that we will le- lose it. So everyone has a role to play here. I, I'm sure that we will be facing a lot of litigation on these issues in the coming years. 
In terms of freedom of protest, the way that it's organized under the new Ministry of National Security, Ben Gvir wanted the policing units of the Ministry of uh, Environmental Protection under his authority because these are units that deal a lot with the uh, Bedouin communities in the Negev. We see it in the call to uh, establish a national guard, which we think is the will be based on the violent militias of the Garinim uh, Toranim, the orthodox centers in the mixed towns that have played such a, a crucial role in escalating the violence in the May 2021 riots. So we're very wor- worried about uh, a rise in violence, specifically in the mixed cities and in the Negev, but also in other Palestinian communities and the way that the police will respond to that. And even if we take a broader view uh, the police controls surveillance, uh, uh, digital surveillance uh, mechanisms. We've already had plenty of scandals regarding uh, police digital surveillance of activists and protesters, right? Exactly. And when when uh, Benvir has the control of these tools, uh, we we could be facing uh, an even worse reality. Uh, so we're we're bracing for that as well. You are a reform rabbi. You ran the Movement's Religious Action Center in Israel for 11 years, dealt intensively with uh, gender uh, issues, gender segregation, affecting women, affecting all kinds of uh, religious freedom. What are your biggest concerns when it comes to religious freedom? And you are very connected to the reform Jewish community abroad, generally the liberal progressive uh, Jewish community abroad. You recently were at the, uh, the J Street conference. Um, what's your message to them in terms of where Israel's headed in terms of uh, religious freedom and, uh, and pluralism of Judaism? One of the things that we're learning in this government is that the separation between different rights is mostly artificial. There's no way to protect religious freedom if we're not protecting Palestinian rights. There's no way of really protecting LGBT rights if we're not looking at asylum seekers. The map of human rights is one, uh, and the attack may be on specific rights at different junctures, but it's a, it's one attack against all of our rights. And so I'm hoping that this is an opportunity for us to um, to organize better and to sharpen our messages. Um, specifically around the protection of the of the judiciary, which will have an impact on religious freedom as well as LGBT rights, as well as, and even if it, it's not immediate, the potential for abuse of human rights uh, if there's no judicial independence is immense. So I, I think that the way that this government is using religion and religious rhetoric to attack to attack rights, is an opportunity to reclaim the Jewish language as well as reclaim our human rights language that has been um, maybe a little hesitant in the past. Um, I think that the communities, the North American Jewish community and the Israeli liberal community are closer now in in understanding the threats of populism and uh, the fragility of democracy than we've we've been, say, eight years ago. I think that the American Jewish community can now understand populist leaderships and and their danger and the way they come into power a lot more than they did in the past. And we in Israel have been facing that for decades now. And this is an important uh, opportunity for collaboration. The crisis of democracy is not uniquely Israeli, nor is it uniquely American. It's a global crisis, um, which I think will be solved globally. And so we as a network have an important role to play here. 
And so that's helpful in, for example, American Jews who are concerned about the women of the wall um, in order to help you connect that to the wider issue of, uh, of rights in Israel. Absolutely. And we see how closely inspired right-wing activists in Israel are by American activists. Right, uh, this whole issue of religious liberty and private businesses refusing service, etc. There's a, there's a direct line. There's a direct line also introducing the death, the death penalty. It's coming from the, the right-wing in the U.S., the attempt to build an anti-abortion movement in Israel where it doesn't exist also comes from the U.S. Um, so, so we have a lot to gain from learning from each other. You've personally dealt with Itamar Ben-Gvir for many years um, from when you were the young head of Jerusalem's open house uh, working to create the Jerusalem Pride Parade and he was a fiery activist um, against it. Can you tell the story of your first encounter with Ben-Gvir? Absolutely. So I've, I've met Ben-Gvir many times in the early 2000s. Um, when he was studying law and then just when he got his license, he represented himself against uh, Pride in Jerusalem. He uh, basically appealed to the Supreme Court against the Jerusalem police for granting us a license after we had appealed the, to the Supreme Court against the Jerusalem police because they refused to give us a license. And one of the first encounters that I had with him was when he had to give us the, the appeal that he gave to the Supreme Court. He had to deliver it to us as well. And he came to Jerusalem open house wearing rubber gloves because he didn't want to be contaminated by whatever it was that we were projecting into the universe. But following him for many years, he is a very smart organizer. He's a very determined leader. And his, I think, that's my private assumption, is that he, his goal is not to be the Minister of National Security. His goal is to be the Prime Minister of Israel, and he is going to use every opportunity to outright Netanyahu in order to build his own base, and that is extremely, extremely dangerous. But in the short term, while he's National Security Minister, I know that you are not a big fan of the way that the Israeli police operates today. Are you concerned that maybe soon under uh, Ben Gvir's command you're going to be nostalgic for how they are today? <laughs> I don't know that, that we're going to be nostalgic, but I, I think that policing will be a big, big issue. And also, I want to I remind all of us that every cycle of violence that we've had in the past years with Gaza has begun in changes to the status quo in Al-Aqsa. The Temple Mount. Yes, and, and the way that it usually works is that Israel changes an element in the status quo, and then there is rioting in East Jerusalem and in Gaza, which escalate into a violent conflict that could could be minimal or could could last weeks and also go into the West Bank and and into Israel proper. Basically, historically, the Second Intifada was triggered by, uh, among other elements, but uh, a large element was Ariel Sharon's uh, Temple Mount. Yes, and, yeah. and and also the the twenty twenty one riots began with. Uh, with new security measures by the police in the entrance there. And the ways the way the violent conflict has stopped was by Israel reversing whatever it was that it did. And now that we have a minister that is so committed to changing the status quo there, I think that we may be facing worse cycles of violence for longer periods of time. 
If you don't mind getting a bit personal, this can't be an easy time for you. It's almost like, not to make light of it, but that you've got the bingo card in terms of <laughs> threats by the government to the extent, you know, that you're a Jewish Israeli with that kind of uh, privilege. But you're a member of the LGBT community with four children, uh, considered a, still considered a community leader in that, uh, in that area. You are a female reform rabbi. You head a leftist NGO that has been targeted by the right. I think uh, Smotrich called you an existential threat threat to the country, um, you know, trying to stand up for, uh, for civil rights when they are the prospect of them being attacked from every direction. I'm curious, you know, how overwhelming is it to wake up in the morning and, and face this reality? It's, it's overwhelming. And in, in so many levels, we live in a terrifying time facing realities that we couldn't have dreamt about in our worst nightmares. But I, I, I think that my experience dealing with uh, homophobia and hate groups in Israel uh, for many years has prepared me for this moment where we have such a critical role to play. And on the one ha hand, I am overwhelmed by the damage that I worry this government will cause for generations. But on the other hand, I know that we have a lot of power and possibility to block and mitigate, and everything that we can block and mitigate will also have impact over generations. And I'm encouraged by the organizing of the um, of civil society and 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 in Israel in the past weeks and months, and I think that this is our time to act and this is our time to to protest and and to be as effective as smart as focused as we can be in order to to face this uh, this government. This is the moment to resist, and, and we will take every opportunity to do that. So you feel that spirit, because there's been a lot of talk in the media and, you know, around water coolers about people saying, oh, I'm leaving the country, I'm moving to Berlin, I'm not going to think about politics, etc. A lot of, you know, burnout or checking out by people who fought so hard um, against some of the things this government is trying to do for so long and, and feel, you know, a sense of defeat after the elections and, and, and want to check out of it. But you feel that there is enough or plenty of, uh, of people gearing up and still have the fight left in them? I, th I think that despair and, and um, fear are such understandable reactions to the situation. Uh, and we, we are processing... Uh, spoken like a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I don't know, spoken like a person. I mean, we are processing such a monumental loss. But I, I think that there's no way to run, nowhere to run. I mean, the crisis of democracy is not only happening in Israel. If we think that we can go somewhere where democracy is safe and there's no racism, I don't think that there's a reality like that anywhere in the world. And so the only real response is to face it. And Israel is an exciting place where a lot of forces are happening and, and it's, a, it's an important area in, in the world to have an impact on. And NGOs like yours geared up for these battles? Is there a lot of cooperation, cross-cooperation between different organizations in, in fighting this fight? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of, there are multiple organizations that are doing organizing in, uh, in different ways and we're trying to be coordinated. And I, you've mentioned the attack, uh, the Smotrich calling human rights organizations uh, existential threats to, to Israel. I think that the, the more effective we are, the more rhetoric like that we will hear. And so that's a badge of honor for us, and we're looking forward to a lot more of that. And I think that the it's important to remember at this time that we are facing threats inside Israel. Our colleagues in the West Bank that have been criminalized as, as terrorist organizations are are facing much worse risks um, uh, in terms of their operation and the safety of their staff.
Well, good luck to you. Your work is cut out for you. <laughs> Rabbi Noah Satat, thank you so much for joining us on Haaretz Weekly. Thank you. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guest, Rabbi Noah Satat, and to my producer and editor, Nahara Malkin. I'm Allison Kaplan-Sommer. Until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>